0: 69% of the housing destroyed, 72 million people dead. Is this a game, or is it real?
1: What's the difference?
2: Oh, wow. A high school hacker plays a war simulation game against a computer and nearly starts World War III. Special guest Eli Noah joins us to talk about the mayor of Copenhagen playing tic-tac-toe on placemats, and the innocence of the fire drill generation. We also share our thoughts about weird, Colin the Yankovic story before finding out if War Games stands the test of time.
1: It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut
0: Says as a father, blah blah.
1: It's the of time, James and Allen of the Sage. Do you love still hold up today. The test of time, James and Helen of the Sage. you love still hold up today.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of the Test of Time. My name is Alan Noah, and I am joined by two very special people. We've got my co-host, James Brief. Hi, James. Hi, I'm favorite boy in your life, number one. False, because we are also joined by my son coming back on the show, Eli Noah. Hello, viewers. Well, they're listeners. Same thing. (laughs) Good enough. I shouldn't correct you. You're back on the show. And Eli, it's so great to have you back. Great to be on the show. All right. So today we're going to be talking about war games. And there's a lot to discuss with war games. But first, we need to talk about Weird, colon, the Al Yankovic story. This is the new Weird Al quote-unquote biopic. James, I'm guessing you haven't seen it? Uh, not yet. It's on, like, the Roku channel. Yes, and I'm glad that you brought that up, James, because I have seen people complaining about it online of, like, I already subscribe to Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max. I'm not signing up for another streaming service. I didn't realize this. I had never watched anything on Roku before. Roku is totally free. And not just free, you don't have to sign up. Just download the app, go to roku.com, and then you push play. You don't have to put in your credit card or your name or your email or set up a password or anything. So it's really, really easy. The downside is, is that there are some commercials while you watch, but it is really easy. There's no free trial that you have to sign up for or anything. I think this is pretty genius of them. They spent a couple million dollars on this
0: uh, film, and everybody is talking about this Roku channel.
2: Yes. Uh, And the budget was $8 million. I know that because I read an interview where uh, they were talking about that.
0: Yeah, but $8 million to get the word out. Um, What did you guys think of the movie?
1: I thought that it was a very good movie. It definitely played well into the whole Weird Al theme. You said that he parodied other movies. I did not know about that.
2: Yeah, the movie is a parody of biopics, and it's a little bit unfair that you haven't seen a lot of those biopics, so you don't really get all of the things that they're making fun of. But I think it is still funny, if you don't get all of those references and know all of those tropes of biopics, I think you know you and I can watch some biopics if you want. There's plenty of musicians you like, like Bohemian Rhapsody is is pretty popular. Yeah, I, there's that one. You've gotten into um, '90s hip hop. We should watch uh, Straight Outta Compton. That's yeah. like the N.W.A. story, and there's a million like it. But what the movie does is it really plays with those tropes, and sometimes it just takes the trope. And it just amplifies it. Sometimes it flips it on its head. Sometimes it just has fun with it. And I think it makes the movie funnier if you get those references. But I think it's still just funny without it. And I thought this movie was so... Damn hilarious. You know, I had just been reading interview after interview and watching all of these interviews with uh Weird Al and Daniel Radcliffe on Fallon and Seth Meyers and everywhere. And I was really, really, really excited. And there was only the potential for the movie to let me down because I had built it up so much and it didn't. It did not disappoint. I thought it was just amazing. And I highly, highly recommend everybody watch it, whether you're a diehard Weird Al fan or not.
0: I've always had a lot of respect for Daniel Radcliffe because, uh, I mean, the guy is just made of money, and he does not have to do these things. He did not have to do Equius. I think that was that play he did on Broadway where he's with a horse, and, you know, it's, a, it's pretty avant-garde. I think he probably really is a, an artist, and I give him a lot of credit for doing this film, and I'm glad you liked it. I'm hoping that your praise is not just an Alan praise, because there is a little bit of bias, but... But, um, oh sure. Now, let me ask you this, um, Eli, do you think this is a film that other kids your age would like? And if they would like it, do they have to have known a little bit about Weird Al?
1: It is a pretty funny movie. So like if you just want to have a laugh, then you can watch the movie. You don't really have to know anything about him. I mean, the movie does not follow his life story at all. He does reference some of his songs. So if you know them, then like maybe you could have sung along to them. But you really don't need to know anything about Weird Al to watch the movie. And I do want to mention that
2: when we watched this movie, we had a screening party. We invited a couple other friends over to the house. We watched it outside because it was beautiful. So there were other adults and there were other kids there too. All of the adults loved it. All of the kids loved it too. And all of those other kids have less of a knowledge of Weird Al than you do, Eli. You know, we just saw him uh play Carnegie Hall, what was it, last week. But these other kids who don't know Weird Al and didn't know the story, and a couple of the kids were like, I thought this was all real. I didn't know that that wasn't his real story. But it doesn't matter because they still found it funny. So from that little cross-sample of the three families that were over watching the movie, it got rave reviews from more than just me and my incredible bias.
0: That's great to hear. I've always been a fan of Weird Al, uh, Al Yankovic, as a person, as an artist. I think he's always kind of done it the, the right way. Um, I've always been a fan of you two, Aww. and um, you know, speaking of Weird Al, who's had his career in the eighties, nineties, and two thousands, I'm very excited for the first of our hacking trilogy. Tonight's a movie that we're going to review: War Games. This is going to be the first of three films that we're going to do, and I've had this idea for a while in this podcast, and I've always known we were going to do War Games and then Hackers, and then finally we decided
2: we're going to do uh, 2001 Swordfish for a 2000s hacking film. It's funny you say that your idea to do hackers and war games as like back to back movies. I think that came from like when we were first, first, first talking about doing this podcast, like in 2016. So it took us a long time to get here. But Eli, you really wanted to come on to talk about war games. And
1: I don't know why. Why did you want to do this particular movie? I think that. It was after the first time that I had ever watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I loved that movie. That was like one of my favorite 80s movies. And Matthew Broderick plays Ferris Bueller. And Matthew Broderick also plays a main character in war games. And I thought that that would just be cool, like, movie to review because I love Matthew Broderick.
2: Did it have anything to do with Ready Player One? Because in Ready Player One, there's like that part where he has to go through the
1: movie and like, you know, say all of Matthew Broderick's lines. Did that like pique your curiosity at all? I don't think that that had any impact on me. I just think that I wanted to watch the Matthew Broderick movie. All right, fair enough. And I should also point out that
2: this movie was requested by listener Cody Jones, who wanted us to talk about war games. And Dom Monfrey, who's been on the show many times, also did ask to come on for this episode. Sorry, Dom. Love you. Miss you. Yeah, you got bumped for Eli. He's my kid though. So I think you'll forgive me, Dom. I hope so. And that's just not Dom. That's five-timers club member, Dom. Yes, yes. And we will have Dom back on soon, definitely.
0: All right, so let's go into the movie. Uh, If you haven't seen War Games in a while... War Games is a 1983 film about a high school student named David, played by Matthew Broderick. And David loves computers. And when he's looking for some new video games, he accidentally stumbles upon a war-simulating supercomputer at NORAD. Now, he begins playing what he thinks is a game of thermonuclear war. But the computer, named Whopper, doesn't understand the difference between a simulation and reality, and is doing all it can to start World War III. David and his friend and love interest, Jennifer, they track down the machine's inventor, Stephen Falcon, with the hopes of preventing nuclear Armageddon. And to do that, they need to show Whopper the futility of war itself. Right. So when this movie was released in 1983, was it a big hit? You know, one thing about this film is it comes out uh, in the middle of 1983. This is June 3rd, 1983. You have to understand, this is the dawn of computers computers were just starting to get into people's homes. So a movie about computers and what people could do with them, no one really knew what you could do with them. And so this was very exciting. And this film had a $12 million budget, and it opened at number three with $6.2 million. Number two was a more or less forgotten sequel called Psycho 2, but the number one film, I wonder if Eli can guess this film. It was actually the number one film of the entire year, and it was a sequel. Actually, the, the third film that had ever come out in this series, and this is 1983.
1: Star Wars Return of the Jedi.
0: Very good. That's correct. Very, very good. Uh, Your dad is proud of you. I am. I am. Um, This film, uh, it opened with $6.2 million, and it wound up with $79.5 million. This film was in theaters until September 23rd. So it was in the theaters the entire summer. Wow. And War Games was actually the fifth biggest moneymaker of 1983.
2: Wow. I didn't realize this was such a uh,
0: monumental hit. It was a huge hit and shockingly did not make a sequel until they squeezed out some uh, direct-to-DVD sequel in the uh, 2000s.
2: Yeah, I thought that was weird. Like, if you're going to do a legacy sequel, make it, like, worthwhile. But um,
0: John Bandham, uh do you know what he's uh, famously known for directing? No. He's most famous for filming uh, the first time John Travolta became very famous.
2: Uh, Saturday Night Fever?
0: Yes, yes, they got him. But the original director was Martin Brest. We've talked about this guy before. Do you know who, what he directed?
2: Uh, he directed Beverly Hills Cop. That was
0: very, very good. And then he directed a very famous flop years
2: later. Oh, he directed Geely and like a lot yes. of other like bad movies, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, apparently the film had a very serious tone and and
2: John Bateman kind of made it a little bit more lighthearted. That's right. So as we start talking about war games, I think the elephant in the room that we need to discuss is that this movie is really about the threat of nuclear war. And in the 1980s, this was a big concern, right? This was something that people thought about,
0: people were worried about. And Al, I was thinking of something. We've talked about something a lot of times before how you and I don't really exist in a specific generation because we're kind of after uh, Gen Xers and we're not quite uh, millennials. I think our generation, Al, I would define as a generation of people born between like 1975 and 1998. It's about a 20-year gap here. And I could call us the fire drill generation because when we were in school— the fire alarms might go off and everyone starts cheering because yay, it's a fire alarm drill. You all go outside. People kind of yell a little bit. And that was it. But when our parents, your grandparents were in school, they had nuclear bomb drills where they would literally go under their desks and like, hide under desks from a nuclear bomb. And then, of course, in your generation, you guys unfortunately have these uh, shooter drills. But Al and I lived in this blissful era where it was kind of after the Cold War and kind of before you know all these other dangers. And You know, we'd never really had this kind of fear in our later childhood.
2: Right. And so, Eli, you're 12 years old, and you have concerns in your life that are not, like, about the world and current events and politics and all of that stuff. But you are also a kid who knows what's going on in the world, and you you have your magazine that you get every week that has, like, current events, and you learn about stuff at school. So when you – here are these things about like the Cold War and kids who are scared of atomic bombs. What do you think about that?
1: Um I don't know. it's a kind of kind of a weird thing to think about, but um the threat of nuclear war is like any country could like launch a missile at any time, and like there's still a threat, but I feel like maybe back then it was just more relevant, but it could still happen. <laughs> I don't want to put words in your mouth,
2: but would you say it's just, like, not a thing that you think about or worry about?
1: Yeah, it's not really a a worry to anybody.
2: To anyone your generation? Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. There's always going to be a fear, an overall fear, not your, you know, your microscopic fears of your life and your friends and your high school or something. But I'm talking about the macroscopic fears. When my mother came to this country and my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, I mean, you know, tattoos, Auschwitz and everything. So my mother, when she was growing up, she always knew where is she going to hide when the Nazis come And when we were kids, the movies were about, like, blowing up uh, the the world. And Rocky IV was about, maybe we could just, like have peaceful sport competitions instead of killing each other. You know, he says better that two people kill each other than 20 million. Then there were fears of terrorism. And now there's fears of shootings. And I guess in some way, a success of maybe some of the cooling down of the nuclear arms race, that you're a typical American male, a boy, 12 years old, who does not have a fear of nuclear destruction. Whereas in the 1960s, 12-year-old we were scared of this, and so
2: were 42 year olds. Uh, so was everyone. But so, so let's turn our attention to the hacking element of this movie.
0: Yeah, and that's actually where I was really interested in seeing how this film holds up. Because everyone in your class can use a phone, right? They can use a smartphone. Basically, if you ask anyone in your class, who is the mayor of Copenhagen? You think that anyone in your class could figure that out in about a minute, right?
1: Yeah, with all like the access that everybody has to the internet now, you can search up any question you want and have it. In like 30 seconds.
0: But it's not that you can have it. It's that every 12-year-old has the
2: knowledge to be able to do that. Sophie Anderson is the mayor of Copenhagen. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce her middle name you could have also asked Alexa and and,
0: uh, she would have told you how to pronounce it. But um, the point is, in the 80s, you would say things like, oh, he's into computers. Oh, do you know computers? And when you watch this film, it's clear that uh, David, he knows computers. And Jennifer, she has absolutely no idea what computers can even do. From the fact that computers can even talk to other computers, that was amazing to her and that was not unrealistic for 1984 or 1983 rather did you notice the modem that
1: he was using no Uh, do you know what a modem is uh, Eli I think it's something that like runs your computer so in the
2: old days you needed a modem to go online if you had the computer you could just be on the computer like typing something up on a word processor or playing solitaire and then you could say, ah, now I will go online and that was a separate thing you had to do and you needed a phone line to do it. And when we were kids, uh, James and I, like in the 90s, you just plug the phone line into the back of your computer, but it would still use the phone line. And in this movie, he takes the phone and he like puts it on that like weird thing on his desk that's the modem. That's how you would get online. Also, in this movie, it's a little bit weird because his mom seems to be like a real estate agent who's like making business deals and seems to need to use their phone. And he's just taking up the phone for for his hacking stuff and probably tying up the only line. I'm going to assume that they didn't have two phone lines because no one had two phone lines in 1983. I don't think.
0: Probably not. And that's basically all a modem is. It was a way to connect computers to another computer. He's trying to find computers to connect to. So he has his phone dial every single number in a certain city. And at the end of the day, he like has a list of computers he connected to. Most are banks or a library. And then one is NORAD.
2: I guess that's hacking and maybe that's like advanced hacking for 1983. It kind of made me roll my eyes of like, this guy isn't an amazing hacker. He's just set up a program that just dials every single number one at a time. That doesn't necessarily make him a genius when he hacks into the school Computer and he's like changes his grade, which is by the way, very similar to what Matthew Broderick does in Ferris Bueller's day off. Then he's changing the number of absences, you know, from nine times down to whatever it was, like four. But like the fact that he's able to do that is because he knows where they write down the passwords in the office, which is smart of David to know that, but he's not like a master hacker who is unbelievable with computers. He's just like kind of smart and able to problem solve.
0: They don't present him as a super hacker. They don't present him as uh Rami Malik in uh, Mr. Robot. You're exactly right, Al. This guy, really, all he is is he's just the kid on the block that knows computers. And the only reason he's doing this, he literally is looking for a video game to play. He's sitting there, like, drinking soda with this girl, and they're playing, like, Thermonuclear War. It's just a little video game they're playing. I basically played that game. Uh, there was an old game called Scorched Earth that was very popular on PCs, and, like, you threw lobbed bombs at each other. That was a fun game. And while the ease of this is probably unrealistic, I'll bet you there was zero security, at least in the, the very first uh, computers that were set up in these schools. Like, I'll bet you in 1981, 82, 83, you probably could get away with this stuff, at least at your local level of hacking into your high school.
2: Eli, I'm just curious, when you hear the word hacking, what do you envision? What, what's going on in your mind? Good question, Al.
1: I envision, like, one of those movies, like, The Matrix and, like, all those, like, the numbers, like, the ones and the zeros, like, flashing across the screen. And, like, some guy wearing, like, a Illuminati mask. I don't know what you would call it. Like, sitting at a computer. (laughs) That almost kind of makes me think of um,
2: Ned in the Spider-Man movies. He just wants to be, like, the guy in the chair. Whenever Spider-Man or whoever the hero of the story is, you know, when he says, I need to find how to get into this room, and it's locked because it's in a secure facility, he just goes onto his computer and you just hear clacking. Then he solves the problem. Yeah. I think this version of that in this movie is Different, but I think it's because computers were so new that no one really knew what a hacker was at this point. Was there anything that you saw in those computers that you were like, what the hell is that?
1: The phone thing, I definitely like didn't recognize what that was and why you needed to like, put the phone on like the two different things. And also... The floppy disks that they had, I had no idea why why they would need those. Yeah,
2: that was how you held information on those old computers was a floppy disk. And the old floppy disks were floppy. They were huge. And, you know, they kind of would like wibble
0: wobble a little bit. You've seen smaller disks probably like somewhere in your house, right? Uh, no. No, we don't have any disks anywhere. Not even in, like, old movies or anything? People, like, inserting
2: an old, like, disk into a a computer? Have you ever seen that before? No. I was going to ask you, Eli, if you've ever even seen the little picture of the floppy disk in Microsoft Word. You don't even use Microsoft Word. You just use Google Docs. Yeah. But, like, in Word, when you want to save the file, there is a little picture of a floppy disk, and your generation might know that that button is used to save, but you don't even know what it is because you've never seen an actual floppy disk in real life.
1: Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a floppy disk in real life.
2: Now, why would you have?
0: It? Yeah, you know what? Your dad is the opposite of a hoarder. He actually would not
2: have an old floppy disk. What would I need it for? Where would I put it? You know, I don't have a computer that that could read a floppy disk. That's true. You probably don't. Um, And the computers inside NORAD are laughable, and laughable from a 2022 lens. You know, at the time, I'm sure that's what computers look like, but when they're talking about these giant machines, these are brilliant supercomputers, and they are these massive things, you know, with like the big whirring tapes, I mean, that's what computers look like, but you see that now, and you're like, "That's a computer." Come on,
0: yeah, it's kind of funny because Whopper, which I think is actually kind of built pretty cool, uh, it's slick and surprisingly doesn't look silly. But um, I did see the sequel that came out years later called War Games: Colon the Dead Code, and it takes place in like I don't know, 2005 or six or something. And Faulkner, he's back. And he actually had designed another AI that was like anti-terrorism simulations or something. That computer is called Ripley. They wind up having to wake up Whopper and they use Whopper to like bring down Ripley. Yes, it's a supercomputer in 1983, but Whopper versus the 2006 mainframe, like a Nintendo DS from 2001, probably would have a better chance rather than Whopper from 1983. It just
2: seemed a little silly. I agree that the Whopper didn't look terrible, but I felt like there were a lot of weird shots of the Whopper where... They would just kind of like had the camera like go around the computer and you saw all of the lights flashing on it. I guess they were doing that because like Whopper is a character in the movie, kind of?
0: Absolutely, it's a character because they gave it a voice. Well, they call it Joshua. The software is Joshua.
2: Okay, so the hardware is Whopper, the software is Joshua? I think so. Okay, I'll buy that. But what the hell is going on at NORAD in this movie? Of course, I am not an expert. I have never been to NORAD. But like, there's a tour going on there? Like, what the hell was that? Those were VIPs, Al. That was not like
0: Joe and Susie Taxpayer.
1: Yeah, uh, also, it's a very good way for like, the Soviets to just have a spy and then they take a tour of NORAD and see every single thing there, and then, oh hey, we could bomb this place like if it would be like a top secret government place where they're monitoring all of the nuclear bombs and everything, it would be very easy for like one of the people from the Soviets to just get like a spy there and then find out everything that's going on, yeah,
2: that's what they do at Mara Lago, but also. Speaking of Soviet spies, they think that David is a Soviet spy. That is their working theory. And like Dabney Coleman's character like brings him into his office and then there's an alert and he's like, okay, you wait here. Person I suspect is a Soviet spy in my office in NORAD. Like, why would you do that? Why would you leave him alone inside your office that's pretty damn stupid with the computer on with the computer on then david is able to escape thanks to like some well-timed sexual harassment that's going on with like this one employee who's like hitting on the the woman who works there And, like, after he escapes the facility, David is able to get on a plane that, like, Jennifer buys him a ticket. Like, wouldn't you think maybe at that point someone from NORAD would call and, like, get this guy on, like, a no-fly list? I don't know if no-fly lists existed in 1983, but, like, you would think they would try to prevent this guy from leaving the state, maybe? To be fair,
0: Dabney Coleman's character, this is not like an FBI guy. This guy doesn't know how to detain a 17-year-old. That part is believable to me. It was silly of him to leave David in a room with a computer that he could learn what he needs to learn. He didn't think that someone's going to get into
2: this. Okay, so Dabney Coleman's character, maybe he messes up. But what about that bald guy who's in NORAD, who's a really take-charge kind of character? You guys recognize that guy, right? No? James, you did? No. Who are you talking about? You didn't recognize him? Okay, well, the actor's name is James Tolkien. And when he's talking about David, he refers to him as an underachiever, which is... Basically the same thing as a... Slacker. A slacker! It's the principal from Back to the Future. And all I wanted was for him to call David a slacker and, you know, underachievers, kind of the same thing. But, um, yeah, I was really excited when I saw that guy. I feel like he doesn't pop up in a ton of stuff.
0: I mean, he popped up in uh, Back to the Future and Back to the Future 2, but nothing else after that. I challenge you to name another film that that guy's been in.
2: Back to the Future, part three. Damn you, Al. Uh Uh-huh. He was in something else along the way. Oh, I know something he was in. What's that? Masters of the
0: Universe. Oh, okay. So I want to talk about the climax of this film. Sure. Uh, Because there's a big chase. They find uh, Faulkner, the guy who invented Joshua. They all come back. It looks like there's incoming ICBMs into the United States. And they have to tell him, like, don't launch the missiles like because the moment you launch, the Soviets will launch, too, and then everyone's dead. It's a leap of faith. They're believing William Faulkner's knowledge and his logic because he's saying – Don't you know that you're both dead? Don't the other guys also know that? And then they agree. That was actually a a theory back then about why there was no nuclear war, because of something called MAD, M-A-D, which stood for Mutually Assured Destruction. And that's essentially what, what this film tries to depict, because there's no way for a single side to win.
1: I think that this is like a good message, too. And that, like, even if, say, America did win, you still killed, like, 70 million, like, innocent Russian civilians. But, like, nobody will win in, in, like, a nuclear conflict or war itself because people just die.
0: But it's also saying there's no scenario in which 70 million Americans also don't die and 70 million Europeans and, uh, you know, a billion uh, Africans and Asians. Like, those are all the simulations. It's trying, what if we first bomb all of the Russian bombs that we know about? Then we'll try to bomb the rest of them. No, that doesn't work. Let's see, what if we bomb the Middle East first? And no, that doesn't work. Basically, the the computer realized at the very end, there is no winning move. I guess if you define winning as not losing, the only winning move, sort of like tic-tac-toe, is not to play.
1: It could have tried to explain it more. I mean, it didn't really make sense that tic-tac-toe could teach, like, a super advanced computer about how nobody wins in war. It's kind of a far stretch. I remember when you were younger, when we would go to a restaurant,
2: they would give you the menus with the crayons, you know, the games that you would play, there would be a little maze and a little word scramble, they would also have tic-tac-toe, and you love to play tic-tac-toe with me, definitely now you're at the point where it's like, yeah, what's the point of playing tic-tac-toe, because it's stupid,
1: Yeah, it's going to end up in a tie every time.
0: He's teaching the computer one simple lesson it never learned. And they go, what's that? And he says, futility. Playing tic-tac-toe, it's futile. It doesn't matter how many times you'll play it. You know, once you're past age 10, five-year-olds can play it against each other. If you take your time, there's no way to lose. It's supposed to be a metaphor for nuclear war. You could play it a billion different scenarios. You'll never win tic-tac-toe against a computer versus a computer. Human versus human
2: could never win a thermonuclear war. That's true. But the the other thing I didn't really get about this is that when they first start talking about Whopper, the way that they describe it is that all this machine does is simulate wars. It simulates every possible conceivable outcome of a World War III scenario of nuclear war. So, Wouldn't it have already calculated that, that like there is no winner, it is futile, everyone loses, everyone dies? Like why is it that when it plays tic-tac-toe that that teaches it futility?
0: Because it never actually played it. Because it actually said number number of human players, zero. No one had ever actually given it that lesson. That's my guess. There might be a plot hole there. Why it wasn't it ever tested beforehand? And what the hell is Whopper doing all the time if it was able to, to make this simulation here? But I guess it never had a purpose beforehand. It was just going through those simulations over and over and over, but it never like turned on the game, I guess. Maybe that's what it was. I, I mean, I see the plot
2: hole you're talking about here. But that's the only way I could think about it. And that's fair. That That's a fair explanation. I just, I felt like... Well, if all this thing does is calculate World War III, it should have been able to get to that conclusion on its own That's without true. the tic-tac-toe lesson. I get it from the story in the movie and, you know, the characters and A to B to C, but I just thought that was a little bit off.
0: I can see that that point there. Um, one other thing in the final scene, I want to give it a shout out to is the score by Arthur Rubenstein. I thought it was fantastic. It was a very like a uh, seventy-piece orchestra kind of thing.
2: Didn't really make an impression on me. How about you, relay? No, I don't really
1: remember it that well either.
0: Okay,
2: the film was uh, nominated for best
0: sound, so I'm not I'm not sure if that that counts there.
1: No, that's not score. That's just like
2: sound effects. Sound design, I should say. Yeah, sound effects and stuff, which I wonder what the
0: effects are. You know, (laughs) is it the bleeps of Whopper? Because those weren't that great. I. Yes, But, um, you know, it's interesting. In response to this movie, it inspired a real uh, law that was passed. uh, The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1984. A congressman said, quote, we're going to show about four minutes from the movie War Games, which outlines this modern problem very clearly. And no, it was not this problem of, hey, can we just talk to our enemies so that we don't blow up the entire planet? No, the lesson of this film that they found was that we can't have these kids dialing other computers and they they made uh, one of the first anti-hacking
2: laws got it all right well because we're at the end of the movie eli let me ask you do you think that war games stands the test of time
1: i do think that war games stands the test of time i have watched it 40 years after it was made it is still a very good movie. I did enjoy it. Um, the plot is still relevant. like It could happen today. I mean, not in like this situation right now, but you could imagine this happening. It's a very good movie. The acting is pretty good. Um, it's written pretty well, too. And yeah, I just thought that overall it was a good movie. And that, yeah, it does stand the test of time. Okay. James, what do you think?
0: Whether it was by
1: design
0: that they knew that computers are the kind of thing, maybe don't talk about too much technicality. Other than things like the modems and the floppy disks, which are really just passing images, really they don't get into the depths of the computer hacking. And apparently they they faked some of the hacking stuff in this film because they didn't want to like teach anyone like hacking. But um, I think it's more about the themes of the film. Thermonuclear war. I think those really stand up very, very well, that it doesn't matter what the computers look like. Parts of the film are a little boring. I, I think the film I kind of just has to find something to do with itself, with the whole escape and then recapturing. It does allow them to meet Professor Falcon and the adventure of them escaping and stuff. It, it's not as exciting to me watching it again because I, I kind of know that this part happens. But um, – Unfortunately, there's once again talk of World War III and nuclear war from Russia, and this is not a problem that has gone away, and it really will all come down to the idea of will both sides realize that if you launch a nuclear weapon, it's mutually assured destruction on both sides and I think this theme does stand up. I think the film is very tight i, I there are a couple things i'd update. Matthew Broderick is great. They cast well. The guys who are the generals, I think, are very good. I do think the score is fantastic, especially the climactic scene.
2: So for me, it does stand the test of time. What what do you think, Al? The situation in Ukraine does make me think like, okay, yeah, like this threat of World War III is still real. Like you're saying, James, if Putin decides that he's going to nuke Ukraine, like, That would be a really stupid thing because then does America retaliate and then what does that mean? But that threat doesn't have anything to do with a teenager hacking into a system and then the system goes kerflooey because the algorithm is thinking for itself. I think that like that notion of what artificial intelligence is is outdated like we know what ai can do and we know how ai can think and it doesn't seem realistic and yeah sure okay but there's these self-driving cars and then what if they do the wrong things and i guess it's still like a possibility and no one really knows what these things are capable of but i just don't think that like from a pop culture mindset, I don't think people are worried about, like, what if the computer decides to nuke us all? I think it's more about what happens if Putin decides to nuke us all. To me, that's the scarier thing. Maybe that's just me. Maybe other people would disagree. But I think the computer element just doesn't really work. It feels really dated. And I think that the way this movie looks at nuclear war is kind of dated. I think it has this Cold War vibe to it, which makes sense because it came out in 1983. And that's a real thing that people were really concerned about. But it just doesn't feel like this is... The thing that people are worried about in 2022. Not that we don't have other stuff to worry about because we definitely, definitely do. And not that this isn't a reasonable threat, but it just doesn't feel like it is the fear that people have. Um, a couple of other just real tiny little nitpicky things that made me laugh from a test of time perspective when David's showing off to Jennifer about how he can hack. He books a flight on Pan Am. Eli, that was the name of an airline that is no longer in business. And he asks if they should get a seat in the smoking or non-smoking section. On planes, there used to be a smoking section where people could smoke cigarettes. But while I'm critiquing these things that don't stand the test of time, I do want to make it very clear that I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was really entertaining. I had never seen it before. I wish I had seen it before because I like it. I like Matthew Broderick. I love Ali Sheedy in this movie. We didn't really talk about her that much, but she is adorable. I thought she was great. I like this movie. I think it's got a good message about the futility of war. I firmly believe that. I think it's a great point. But I think just overall, it just feels like a time capsule from 1983. And I'm going to say it doesn't stand the test of time. Well, I mean, we
0: exist in a an era where there are drone footages every day of drones dropping grenades on people. Right now, this is controlled by a guy on an app. In 20 years, it's probably going to be controlled by software. Uh, maybe you've heard of a company called Boston Robotics. They have those robotic dogs out there that you, you've seen. There are people that have already modified them to have guns on them. These are uh, Terminator kind of scary things. So hopefully Al's right. And uh, you know I hope that War Games from 1983 does not stand the test of time because of what you were saying. But I, I
2: fear you're wrong, but hope you're right. That's fair. That's totally fair. This has nothing to do with the movie Standing the Test of Time or not, but I did read that in Leonard Maltin's review of the movie, he said, it's easy to see why this is so popular with kids. Most of the adults in the film are boobs. And that made me laugh because it's. I always think it's funny when people call other people boobs. Well, Eli, thank you for coming back on the show. It was great having you. You're welcome to come back anytime. I'm coming for that five-timers hoodie. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, that's a good goal to have. I, I respect that. Next time you want to come on and talk about a movie, you let me know. I will. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, the Hacking Trilogy continues with Hackers. We're going to be joined by special guest Brett Sills. He's a friend of mine who requested to come on to talk about Hackers years ago. I'm really excited to chat with him about this movie and to see a movie about hacking from the 90s. And we'll see how Angelina Jolie fell in love with her first husband. That's right. Until then, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Write to us. Don't hack us, please. You can also email us at testoftimepodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.